So we're talking about reclaiming a heritage, and I want to begin today just by saying this, that, that we have in our history two very different streams that feed into who we have become. And one stream, for one of those streams, we're indebted to Alexander Campbell. And Campbell bequeathed to us a lot of really good things. I mean, he, he, he taught us some, some really good things about reading the biblical text. He taught us a high view of script. There's so many good things I could say about Campbell. Campbell also, in certain ways, shortchanged us, and I want to say a bit about that. And the other stream, I would connect with Barton W. Stone, uh, David Lipscomb. Is this thing about to fall over? It just keeps going squeak. This is going to pick up on the tape, too, isn't it? This would be pretty funny, isn't it? They're, they're, they're going to think it's me. They're going to think it's a Hughes' knees. <laughs> well, that's probably true, too. <laughs> Maybe John Wilson's knees. <laughs> so I'll try to, try to leave this alone. Let me, so Barton W. Stone, uh, David Lipscomb, Talbert Fanning, R.H. Bowl, who we talked about, is a whole different stream that most of us know very little about. I've got to tell you, when I signed the contract years and years ago to write the, this History of the Churches of Christ that I wrote, I went to Abilene Christian for one year. Jan and I left Springfield, Missouri, went for one year. R.L. Roberts was the old archivist at Abilene Christian. Many of you remember R.L. I'd never met R.L. before. And R.L. came up to me and he said, uh, so what's your game plan? And, uh, you know, I thought I could research and write this book in one year because I, I thought I understood it. I thought it was all about Alexander Campbell. And I said, R.L., I've got a one-year leave of absence from South Missouri State where I've worked with John. And I've got to research this and write it in one year. I'll never forget R.L. held up his hand like a traffic cop. He said, not so fast. He said, there's a lot. He said, you think you know. There's a lot you don't know. And he said, what do you know about Barton W. Stone? I think I might have said, who? I, mean, I didn't know anything really about I mean, I knew of Stone, but I thought of Stone as sort of a miniature Alexander Campbell. He said, you will never, ever get the story of the Churches of Christ if you don't get Barton W. Stone. So R.L. began pointing me to material on Stone and David Lipscomb and R.H. Bowl and that whole heritage. And, and I was telling Robin a minute ago that I remember when, I've, when I first discovered R.H. Bowl, who was very much in this legacy, and I'd take his journal, Word and Work, to my study carol at Abilene Christian, and it was so much more than an academic exercise for me. I would sit down and begin to read R.H. Bowl, and I would weep. I would just weep. I would just sit there, and it was just the most beautiful stuff I'd ever read. And it really, in many ways, saved me for the Churches of Christ. Does that make sense to you? In other words, I was at a point of despairing in some ways. And then I began to read the stuff, and I thought, my goodness, there is there's some great stuff in our heritage. But let me just say, and, and Alexander Campbell gave us some great stuff too, but let me mention to begin with a couple of, th a couple of reasons why I think we have gotten off to some degree on, on the wrong track. Number, number one, Alexander Campbell, and we talked about this a bit yesterday, read the Bible through a scientific lens. So he's looking for biblical facts, and he's looking, he, he's really approaching the text the way a scientist would approach an experiment. 
you gather your data, so you mine the text, you put the data on the table, you draw your conclusions, and they're to a great extent. I mean, you can do that with a certain event, but if you do that, what you miss is the story. You miss that narrative because you're looking for the facts. So it's like you see the trees, but you never see the forest. You know, and that's, I think, in some ways what we missed is that larger forest. The other thing that, that I find really problematic in Campbell that, that Stone and Lipscomb and these other guys help us to correct, Campbell divided, divided scripture into, into dispensations. So you have the patriarchal dispensation, the mosaic dispensation, the Christian dispensation, which is fine, except that Campbell said the Christian dispensation begins with Acts 2. And really, all we need to pay much attention to is the Christian dispensation. So when I am a kid growing up in San Angelo and Dallas and Lubbock, Texas, and I remember those wonderful Bible classes, but we did a lot with Acts and Paul, and we're, our focus is on the church, but where we're missing, you know, if, if the Christian dispensation begins with Acts 2, what we're missing is Jesus, for goodness sake. And not just Jesus, but we're missing the prophets, those Hebrew prophets. That you know, I grew up not knowing much of anything about Amos, Micah, Isaiah, Jeremiah. It was, that's where you get this great ethical material that Jesus then picks up on and, and elaborates. And uh, now, having said that, let me go quickly to, to Barton Stone and David Lipscomb and just say some preliminary things, and then I want to do a little bit of a scripture study with you, if I could. Stone had a very different view of scripture and a very different view of Christian faith. And I like to say that Stone lived his life in the shadow of the second coming. That's really, really important. Campbell was, Campbell was a modern man. Campbell was a man of the Enlightenment. He, he was a man of his age. He was a man of progress. He believed in progress. He believed in education and science. He was a man of his age. Stone, in many ways, was not. Stone was a man who, who lived his life in the shadow of the Second Coming. He lived his life as if the kingdom of God were fully present in the here and now, as if, and those two words are really important, as if, as if God's rule were complete now. What would that mean if we lived our lives as if God's rule, we know that God's rule is not fully complete. We know the kingdom of God does not dominate this earth. We know it's here, it's present, we get glimpses of it, we live into it, but we see wars, we see terrorism, we see lies, we see deceit, we see, and we do all kinds of things. I mean, we too, we're all guilty, but what if we tried to live our lives as if? So the, as if the kingdom of God were fully present. So what, what, do we, what did Stone mean when he talked about the kingdom of God, what did David Lipscomb, these were guys who really had this glimpse of God's kingdom. And this is why I want to do a little bit of a Bible study with you, because I want to go through with you some of the scriptures that were especially important, I think, to David Lipscomb. I don't know, you know, I don't know all the scriptures that were 
crucial to Stone, I know some of them, but Lipscomb is even more transparent because he wrote so much more than Stone. So let me just kind of run through this with you. Uh, David Lipscomb really begins with 1 Samuel 8, 1 to 22. If you've got your Bibles, feel free to get them out, take a look. Because I'm going to be reading this, so I want us to hear the text. So I'm going to go in with verse 1, chapter 8, 1 Samuel. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, the name of the second Abijah, and then they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes, they perverted justice. And then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel and said to him, Samuel, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now, what comes next is really crucial. Now, appoint for us a king to govern us like all the other nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to govern us. And so Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, hearken to the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, Samuel, but they have rejected me. That was crucial for David Lipscomb. They have rejected me, from being king over them. These pages are so thin. According to all the deeds which they have done to me, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so hearken their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who will reign over them. In other words, tell them what's going to happen. Let them know. If they, you get a king... So Samuel tells them. So Samuel told the words of the Lord to the people who are asking for a king, and he said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and will appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. Force conscription. Okay? And he will appoint for himself for himself. Commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and some to reap his harvest. What does that sound like to you? Slavery. Slavery, yeah. And some to make his implements of war and the equipment for his chariots. And he will take your daughters to be perfumers and his cooks and his bakers and he'll take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive orchards and give them to his servants He'll take a tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give that to his officers and his servants. He'll take your men servants and maid servants and the best of your cattle and your asses and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. You still want a king? But the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. And they said, no. But we will have a king over us that we might be like all the other nations and that our king might go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel heard all the words of the people, he repeated those words in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, All right, Samuel, hearken to the voice of the people 
and make them a king. All right, now, now let's skip over to 1 Kings. And I see I didn't mark that like I marked all the others, but that's all right. 1 Kings 4, verse 7, and 26 and 28. So now we're King Solomon. And here's what the text says. Solomon had 12 officers over all Israel who provided food for the king and his household. Each man had to make provision for one month of the year, and then it gives their names. And then skip down to verse 26. Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour, 30 cores of meal, 10 fatted oxen, 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep besides hearts, gazelles, roebucks, and fatted fowl, Solomon also had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. And those officers supplied provisions for King Solomon and for all who came to Solomon's table. Each one in his month, they let nothing be lacking. Barley also and straw for the horses and swift steeds they brought to the place where it was required, each according to his charge. Now I'm going to skip over to 513. King Solomon raised a levy of forced labor out of all of Israel. And the levy numbered 30,000 men. And he sent them to Lebanon, 10,000 a month in relays. They would be a month in Lebanon, two months at home, and so on and so forth. In other words, Samuel told them, and this is really, really important for David Lipscomb, because Lipscomb points to where... Solomon's, God says to, to Samuel, tell, he says, Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. I want to be their king. They don't want me to be the king. They want a human king. Give them their king. And let's see how it works out. It didn't work out so well. And then throughout all of Scripture, in both the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, we have this vision for the, the, the kind of world we will have when God's reign is complete. Are you getting the picture here now? You see, Lipscomb is longing for the day when God's reign is complete. And Lipscomb and Barton Stone, these guys were saying, I will live my life as if God's reign is complete. I know it isn't, but I'm not going to live my life only in this temporal world. I'm not going to play that game. I'm going to live my life as if God's reign is complete. And that's what these guys did. And that's, you talk about reclaiming a heritage. This is the heritage that we have deeply rooted in our history, in our, in our heritage, in our tradition. Now, I want to jump over. I'm going to spend a little bit of time quickly on this whole notion of the kingdom. And so I'm going to jump over to Daniel. Because this is another passage really important to David Lipscomb. Daniel 2, 31 to 35. You know the story. Nebuchadnezzar had the dream, and Daniel interprets it. You saw, O king, and behold a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you. 
and its appearance was frightening. He's telling the king about the dream he had. The head of the image was of fine gold, its breast and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of clay and partly of iron. And as you looked, a stone was cut, cut out by no human hand, and it smote the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. And then the iron and clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like shaft of the summer's threshing floor. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found, but the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom and the power and the might and the glory, and into his hand he has given wherever they dwell, the sons of men, the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, making you rule over them all. You, O king, you are the head of gold. But after you will arise another kingdom inferior to you, yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule the earth, and then a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things, and like iron which crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And then as you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. And as you saw the iron mixed with miry clay, so they will mix with one another. And here's the kicker. And in the days of those kings, see, again, this is what Lipscomb is really talking about. In, these, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. It's the kingdom of God. It's not Germany. It's not Egypt. It's not the United States. It's the kingdom of God. Never be destroyed, nor shall its sovereignty be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end and it shall stand forever, the kingdom of God. Now, I want to go to one more passage. There's so much we could do with this kingdom of God vis-a-vis -vis the kingdoms of this earth, and I want to go to one more passage on this. And then I want to ask the question, what is this kingdom of God? What is it like? What does it do? How would we know it? But before we get to that, I want to go to the little book that a lot of people think is the most difficult book in the Bible to understand, but it does strike me that a lot of it is pretty clear. Revelation. Okay? I want to read what... I want to begin with 1, 4 to 6. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Now, before I read this, maybe I should say this. John is on the Isle of Patmos. Christians are suffering severe persecution from Rome. 
you know, and when we talk about the Christians' relation to the government, you know, we typically go right to Romans, right? Begins objection to the powers of so and so. I don't know what this book says, Revelation. I mean, this is pretty seditious literature. So John is going to be talking in this material, he'll be talking about Babylon. Babylon? Babylon's long since come and gone. There's no Babylon. But John keeps talking about fallen, fallen. What's he talking about? Dwayne, talking about Rome. He's talking about Rome. But he can't, he can't just come out and say Rome. I mean, he doesn't want to you know, be beheaded or something, so he's going to kind of put it in code. You know, I, I think about, you know, I think about this, the, the enslaved people in this country. You know, when they talked about freedom, they'd sing about good news, chariots coming. It's coming for to carry me home. And the slave master heard those songs and thought they were talking about going to heaven. Well, yeah, they were. That's right, but they're talking about way more than they're talking about freedom, you know, out of Egyptian bondage into the, into the land of freedom. Same things going on here. So John is using code, talking about. So John begins. He says, "John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him." To listen to this, from him, think about the context. Rome thinks it's the it's eternal. Rome thinks it's all powerful. You know, Rome thinks it's your rule. You know, I'm the ruler. What does John say? John to the seven churches, grace to you and peace from him who was and who is and who is to come and from the seven spirits before the throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead. What's the point? This kingdom of God is the kingdom of life. Firstborn of the dead. Rome is the kingdom of death. Clear implication. It's good to spell this out as we go along. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father, to him. Think about this. Think of the context. Caesar says, to me be glory and power. I sit on the throne. I am the Lord of the earth. What does John say? To him who loves us and has freed us and has made us a kingdom, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. This is David Lipscomb. Are you with me? This is Martin W. Stone. This is, we're getting to the heart of, of our heritage when we read these kind of passages. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, John says in Revelation, and every eye will see him, and everyone, and everyone who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Now let's go to... 2, chapter 2, verse 10 and 26. Verse 10. Which seems to me to be the heart, this verse, the heart of the book of Revelation. Remember, there's suffering persecution. Rome thinks it is the power. John says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. I mean, John is acknowledging you're going to suffer. Do not fear it. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. 
and you will be tested. And for 10 days, and I don't know what the 10 days means, but you can still get the drift of the passage. For 10 days, you will have tribulation. It's going to be tough. Rome is going to make it tough on you. But here's the message. Be faithful unto death. And you, I will give you the crown of life. Don't bow the knee to this guy who's demanding that you fall down and worship him. Don't bow the knee. Be faithful to death. I will give you the crown of life. Now let's jump over to 3.12. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. He who conquers, he who conquers, in other words, if you resist, don't give in to this guy. Don't bow the knee to this guy. He who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God in the name of the city of my God, the kingdom of God. We're getting the drift here. What's okay, now let's do one more, one more thing in Revelation before we move on and talk about what's the nature of this kingdom. So I want to go to Revelation 18. This is a stunning, and I want to read a good bit of this passage. It's a stunning passage. It's absolutely stunning. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. That's key, authority. Who's got the authority? Not Caesar. Saw this angel having great authority. And the earth was made bright with his splendor. And he called with a mighty voice, fallen, fallen. Now we're getting to the seditious part of this. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. I.e., fallen is Rome. Fallen is Caesar. It's over for these guys because God rules. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. It has become a dwelling place of demons, a haunt of every foul spirit, a haunt of every foul and hateful bird. For all the nations have drunk the wine of her impure passion, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. This is fairly contemporary stuff. Think about it. When we read this, we should just think Rome. Although this is what the immediate context. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich with the wealth of her wantonness. Wow. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people. Do you remember yesterday I said there are two kinds of sectarianism? You know, one is the kind that says, I'm the true, you know, I'm the one true church and you're not. There's another kind that says, come out of her, my people. Be faithful to me. Don't conform. This is sectarian stuff, but it's the very best kind of sectarianism in my view. Come out of her, my people, lest you partake of her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as the heaven. And God has remembered her iniquities. 
Render to her as she herself has rendered, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double drought for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and played the wanton, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her, in her heart she says, A queen I sit, I am no widow, mourning I will never see. You get the meaning of that? I will never see mourning. You know, we'll last forever. This is Rome. We'll be here forever. We don't mourn in Rome. So her plagues will come in a single day. Pestilence and mourning and famine. And she shall be burned with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who judges her. You hear this? It's God is king. God is Lord, not Caesar. That dude thinks he's king, but he isn't. God is king. And the kings of the earth who committed fornication and were wanton with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. And they will stand afar off in fear of her torment. And they will say, Alas, alas, thou great city, the almighty city Babylon, in one hour has thy judgment come, and the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple silk, scarlet, all kinds of scented wood, articles of ivory, Articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, chariots, and slaves. That is human souls. That's Rome. I don't need to read any more from that chapter. But I'm going to go to one other chapter, chapter 21. So after talking about Rome in these terms, after painting this picture of the downfall of Rome, John says this, 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Lipscomb would say, kingdom of God. Saw the kingdom. And I heard a great voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Why is Jesus king? He conquered death. Rome, every, we need human governments. We got a state senator sitting right here. I mean, we need human. We can't get along without them. But this message is: human governments serve a whole different purpose. And in many instances, human governments are the instruments 
try as we might to bring life through these governments, they're often instruments of death. The kingdom of God is the kingdom of life. And we know this because Jesus, we just had Easter. Jesus was raised from the dead. Kingdom of life. All right. Now, with that, with that backdrop, let's ask then, what is the nature of this kingdom? What does it look like on the ground? And we get the answer to that question in both the Hebrew Bible and the Old Testament, and we get it in the New Testament, and it's very consistent. And I'm going to go first to the book of Micah. Micah 3, 9 to 12. What we hear from the prophets is that this kingdom, if Rome is a kingdom of injustice, if Rome is the kingdom of death, if Rome was the kingdom of enslaving people, if Rome was the kingdom of brutality, this is the kingdom of justice and equity and treating people right and compassion for the poor. And we're going to see this over and over again. So here's Micah. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, you who abhor justice, He's talking to a human kingdom. You who, you rulers who abhor justice, you rulers who pervert equity, who build Zion with blood, sounds like Rome, and Jerusalem with wrong, its heads give judgment for a bribe, its priests teach for hire, its prophets divine for money, and yet they lean upon the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No evil shall come upon us. And therefore, because of you, Zion shall become as a plowed field. Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins. What's the issue? You tell me. What's the issue? Injustice. It's justice. It's justice. That's the issue. And we're going to see this over and over and over again. Let's take a look at... at at uh, Micah 4, 1 to 3. Because he goes right from what I've just read to you into this. And it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord, we just encountered a mountain, didn't we? A stone cut out of the mountain and smashed all the other kingdoms. The mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And shall be raised far above the hills, and peoples will flow into it, and many nations will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and we may walk in his paths. For he shall judge between many peoples, and shall decide for strong nations afar off. And listen to this. And they shall beat their swords in the pruning hooks. This is the kingdom of God. Rome, they have their chariots and their swords and they conquer people and they annihilate people in the name of the Lord. In this kingdom, they will beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. 
Nation shall not lift up nation, lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Now, yeah, we, we may not like this. You know, we may say that's crazy. You know, we may say that's impractical. Is it nuts? It's what the book says. I don't know how you get away from it. I mean, it's, it's all over the map in the book. 